This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin here once again with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. How can a godly person have a wicked child who in turn has a godly child? What proverb does God reject and what lessons does this story teach us? Well, Jonathan, we've all seen it. We've seen a godly person that we all respect who has a child who goes astray. And then surprisingly, that child has a child who becomes godly. We see this in the Bible. We remember Samuel, the great prophet that God used mightily. He had a son named Joel, who was so wicked that the children of Israel said, we don't want your sons to rule, we want a king. But Joel had a son named Heman, and Heman became one of the great singers in the court of David. And so Joel was ungodly, and Joel had a godly son. We see... Hezekiah. Hezekiah's son was wicked, and his son Ammon was also wicked, but their son Josiah became one of the great kings who brought revival. And so the story goes on and on. We see this because godly people all have their flaws, and their children can see those flaws and focus on them to their spiritual detriment and go astray. Their children, in turn, can, perhaps through the grace of God, the prayers of the grandparents, the influence of the word, the disgust of the ungodliness over their parents, uh, turn back to the Lord. And when they do that, they demonstrate what God teaches us is true. And that's why God rejects the Proverbs, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on age. Each generation has to make its own faith choice to follow the Lord. Henry Blackaby said wisely, my life is the result of choices I make. Godly choices, excuse me, godly parents are no guarantee of godly children, and ungodly parents do not necessarily mean that the children will all be lost. God's word, God's spirit, and the witness and prayers of God's people can be used of God to affect change in any heart. Amen. Amen. Next, why do the people charge God with doing wrong, and how does he respond? What is God's desire for all people? Well, Israel wants to blame the sin that's going on right now on the past and their parents rather than the individuals of that day taking personal responsibility for their own sin. And they want to pass from God. They want to be able to blame it on the past. But God gives neither, and so they accuse him of being unfair. God charges them with unrighteousness over their attacks with him. It's always unwise to attack God because he doesn't do anything the way we want it done. We We want to say, God, you've got to do it my way. But he's God. In fact, J. Vernon McGee used to say, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And the truth is, is God is so wise that he gives his way for us so that we don't get caught up in accusing him of arbitrary unfairness, but we recognize that what God's desire is is that God holds us accountable in the grace and hope that we will repent and turn to him. He says, why should you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Turn to me and live. Hmm. 
Hmm. Next, how does the king of Babylon seek direction for the place of attack? And how do people today seek direction? And in what ways does God lead his people? Future guidance is probably one of the most perennial, persistent questions that people ask. What's going to happen tomorrow? And the world offers many ways to seek that guidance. Nebuchadnezzar, for example, cast lots by shaking arrows, asked his magicians to look for omens, and, and took the livers of animals to split open to see if they would give him direction for his next battle. That's no really different from today. People look at horoscopes. They consult Ouija boards, listen to psychics. Yet actual information about the future is as elusive as ever. D. James Kennedy, the founder of Evangelism Explosion, wrote, One January, my wife and I listed 55 separate prophecies made by today's leading seers and psychics. As that year unfolded, we watched to see which of those prophecies would come true. Not a single one came to pass. Christ's followers are not meant to seek signs and dreams, but rather to follow the Savior. He intentionally doesn't reveal the future to us, probably for our good. Because if we knew what was going to happen in 10 years, we might panic. We might fear. We might not want to hold that future. And perhaps it is best for us that we walk with him, trusting him day by day, and just leaving life to him. Mm. Amen. Amen. Next, in Ezekiel 22, verses 23 to 31, how does Ezekiel describe the sins of each group in the nation, and how extensive is Israel's sin? What person does the Lord seek, and what does he find? Ezekiel describes the entire land as polluted. He details each class of the people, the princes, the prophets, the priests, and even the people, the common people, in their sin. And this is just a direct quote from the text. Your princes plot conspiracies just as lions stalk their prey. They devour innocent people, seizing treasure and extorting wealth. They make many widows in the land. Your priests have violated my instructions and defiled my holy things. They make no distinction between what is holy and what is not. And they do not teach my people the difference between what is ceremonial, clean, and unclean. They disregard my Sabbath day so that I'm dishonored among them. Your leaders, your princes, are like wolves who tear apart their victims. They actually destroy people's lives for money. And your prophets cover up for them by announcing false visions and making lying predictions. They say, my message is from the sovereign Lord when the Lord hasn't spoken a single word to them. Even the common people oppress the poor and rob the needy and deprive foreigners of justice. In response, the Lord says, seek one person among them to stand in the breach and pray for the people, but he finds none. Well, this passage reminds us that our task in our day is to be intercessors in the land for the nation. Because when the nations are coming apart at the seams, what they need are people who will pray. Jeremiah said another time, he said, if they really are prophets and the word of the Lord is with them, let him make intercession to the, to the Lord of hosts. Because the mark of real godly people is praying for their nation, not denouncing, criticizing, or joining in, but praying. Amen. Amen. Next. Why do the priests beg Jeremiah to pray for the city? And when did God deliver Jerusalem before? And why would he not do so now? Well, it's 588 B.C., the priests see the Babylonians at the gates. 
The city, as you know, was destroyed just two years later. But they come now to Jeremiah and they ask him to pray and deliver them, perhaps thinking of the same way that when Hezekiah was surrounded by the 186,000 Assyrians, the Lord in one night swept through and destroyed the Assyrians. But instead of the answer that they hoped for, Jeremiah warned of final judgment and promised that God would even fight against Jerusalem, that he would bring the enemy inside the gates, and that their enemies would slaughter them without mercy. Zedekiah and his companions, the priests who were even asking him to pray, were men who had so abandoned the Lord that they brought final judgment on the nation of, Jer- of the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Next, how does the field that Jeremiah buys give a promise for the future and offer hope for Israel? And how does the Lord affirm that future? And what glorious promise does he make? You know this story. It's one of my favorites. It really, I love this story because the Lord commands Jeremiah to buy his cousin's field in Bethlehem. And then he confirms that command by sending his cousin to offer the field. As every realtor on planet Earth knows, the three rules of uh, real estate are location, location, location. The problem with that location is that the Babylonians happen to be camping on it. So in reality, real estate prices have been driven pretty far down. However, uh, Jeremiah obeys the Lord and exercises the right of kinsman redeemer. Jeremiah buys the field as the Lord has ordered. His act of faith is then followed by this most beautiful prayer of praise. You know this where he says to the Lord, Ah, Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth your mighty power and your stretched out arm, and there's nothing too hard for you. And he goes into this wonderful prayer of praise. And when he finishes, he basically this whole prayer of praise was to say, Why? Why did you tell me to buy this field? But God then gives him a promise that once again, fields will be bought because the people will return. The nation will be restored. Then he follows that promise with a greater promise in Jeremiah 33 that one day the Lord will raise up David's righteous descendant who will do what is right and just. And in his time, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem shall live in safety. His name will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Amen. Amen. What a good promise. Lastly, why does judgment come on Jerusalem? And how thorough is this judgment? How long would it last? Where else in the biblical story has God specified the timing of his activity? Well, Jeremiah, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles all describe the horrific judgment Jerusalem experienced. The writer of 2 Chronicles 36 describes the judgment and its cause. The Lord... The God of their ancestors repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on the people in his temple. But the prophets mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing them into the temple. They had no pity on the people. They killed both young men And young women, the old and the infirm, God handed them all over to Nebuchadnezzar, the text says. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and the palace of the king and his officials. Why why does the Lord let this happen? Everything is destroyed. Well, because Jeremiah warned them that it would happen. God had warned it as far back as Deuteronomy. 
He's fulfilling the promise that he made in Deuteronomy of the curses. And God let Babylon take the people captive from 605 to 537 B.C., according to the 70-year prophecy that Jeremiah had made twice, both in chapters 25 and 29. But this was not the first time. He told Abraham that his descendants would be captive in a land that was not theirs for 400 years. He told Moses that Israel would wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And so God had made promises before and once again fulfilled them with his hand what happened when he would bring judgment, but judgment would always be tempered with mercy. Hmm. Amen. Thank you, Dr. May. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the Word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.